I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. doing podcats adam buxton here joined today in the fields of east anglia by rosie buxton half whippet half poodle all great friend rosie is up ahead still on the mend after a bout of ill health a few weeks back a little bit up and down but she's much perkier on the whole i imagine that she is pretty pleased that she has somehow wangled a full-time spot on the marital bed. My wife's very happy about it too. Oh, it's so nice having her there. She's so sweet. She's no trouble. She curls up. Yeah, kind of. I didn't get that much sleep last night because she was curled up right in the middle of my side. I kept on waking up to find her all luxuriously stretched out reminded me of when the children were small which I suppose is quite nice but a little bit uncomfortable but what's the weather like Buckles well I would say eh. that's how the weather forecasts will be in the future just a noise mmm uh oh and today it's eh. Right, Keith? After a few very spring-like days, it's gone massively grey. It's like a blank day. Anyway, luckily I'm able to plug the greyness with a riot of podcasting colour, courtesy of my guests today for podcast number 151. They are, of course, the English ice dancers and former British, European, Olympic and world champions, Jane Torville and Christopher Dean. Are they the first sports people to have appeared on the podcast? I'm sure they're not the first people who like sport that I've spoken to, even though some of you may know sport is a fairly low priority for me. But... Uh, I think they might be the first professional sports people on the podcast so far. Torville and Dean Fax. Jane, age 63 as I speak. Hope Jane doesn't mind me mentioning her age at the top there. I mention the age of many of my guests, as regular listeners will know, just because, I don't know, I just like knowing people's age. It doesn't really change the way I behave towards them, I hope. Or does it? Anyway... Jane grew up in Nottingham, UK, where she skated from the age of eight, eventually partnering up with Christopher Dean when she was 18. Christopher, currently aged 62, grew up in Lancashire, leaving school aged 16 to become a police cadet. Not long after joining the force, he met Jane at the Nottingham Ice Rink, and once they'd made the decision to partner up, they trained together for the next six years or so. It didn't all happen on the same day, that decision, like meeting and the decision to partner up. 
It kind of sounded that way, the way I've written this. <clears throat> they trained together for the next six years or so, until, in 1980, the pair placed fifth at the Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, at which point Chris left the police force and Jane quit her job as an insurance clerk at the Norwich Union to concentrate full-time on the ice. I was going to put a clip of Ice Ice Baby in at this point, but then I thought, no. Just four years later, at the 1984 Sarajevo Winter Olympics, Jane and Chris won gold for Britain with a routine set to the music of Ravel's Bolero. You know the one. Torville and Dean were awarded the perfect six score for the routine's artistic merit by every judge that year, a record that remains unbroken to this day and a cultural moment that not only helped define the 1980s but is generally considered one of the greatest sporting moments of all time. Oh, this is good fun doing all these superlatives here. After Sarajevo, Jane and Chris turned professional delighting audiences for the next decade with a series of ambitious ice dancing shows until in 1994 a change to winter olympic rules that previously excluded professional skaters saw jane and chris returning to olympic competition this time in the norwegian town of lillehammer and winning the bronze medal the next few years saw jane and chris taking a skate break during which time they picked up an OBE to add to the MBEs they'd been awarded at the World Figure Skating Championships in 1981. But in 2006, they were coaxed out of retirement to take part in ITV's Dancing on Ice, for which they served as creative directors and mentors to the contestants until 2014. And for the last few years, they've been part of the judging panel. My conversation with Jane and Chris took place via the Zoom at the beginning of July last year, 2020, with Jane talking to me from her home in East Sussex, where she lives with her husband and two children, while Chris, also a father of two grown-up sons, was at his home in Colorado Springs, USA. After finding out how they'd been doing during the first months of the COVID pandemic, I asked them about how their journey as sporting legends began. And they also told me about the secrets of maintaining their magical chemistry and negotiating the stresses and strains of double act dynamics. And I got to pass on a few gushing comments from a Torville and Dean mega fan. My wife. But we began by establishing how we came to be in touch in the first place. Back at the end with a little bit more waffle, but right now with Torville and Dean. Here we go. It's nice to meet you. Thank you so much for doing this. I feel I know you, Adam, because I've been listening to your podcast for the last few months, having lockdown. So I was going out for bike rides or walks or hikes, 
and uh, you were accompanying me. Because I was going to ask, like, which one? This is one of the few occasions, I hope you don't mind me saying, that a guest has got in touch with me rather than the other way around initially and made contact. And I love it when that happens. It has the effect of making me a little bit more relaxed. You know what I mean? I, I feel as if... Absolutely. Half the battle has been won. Uh, I, I always get nervous that yeah, people are going to be yeah. eyeing me suspiciously going, who's this prat? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've listened to many conversations with very smart people, very funny people. <laughs> cool. Thanks, man. And Jane, I'm sorry you've been dragged into this. No, no, no. I've um, Because Chris has mentioned you before, I have listened to a couple of the podcasts. Cool. So and I, now she will become I, a devotee. And I do it when I'm in the kitchen and I'm cooking or something. So have it on then. Yeah. So... <laughs> Jane, you are in Sussex as we speak. Yes. Where you've lived a long time, I think, right? 1992, yeah. So quite a few years now. (laughs) And how about you, Chris? You're not in the UK. Um, I'm in Colorado Springs. Yeah. I've lived here for 21 years now, I think. Yeah. How did you end up there? Uh, I married a girl from here. Right. And what's your COVID situation out there? I think it's the same as everywhere. And and America is, uh, you know, experiencing a real um, spike at the moment. I think, you know, a lot of people um, are getting sick again, or at least testing positive anyway. But where I am in the Springs, it's not a city. It's sort of a a town. And it's sort of a lot of open countryside. Well, I live on the side of a mountain. And so there's a lot of space around. So you don't feel like the walls and concrete around you. It's... Yeah wooded areas and things like that so our tv show the dancing on ice finished on the 9th of march or at least i flew home i think on the 9th of march which was a monday by friday everything was locking down so we were just in time for me just to get back to america before they started closing the doors and normally after a season like that anyway we have a downtime and so for me, it was just sort of like, oh, well, I'm, I'm not going out to do anything for the next however many weeks. So it was sort of a, a bit normal. Having said that, um, you know, going to the store and things change completely. It's, you know, click and collect kind of thing. And I rediscovered jigsaws. <laughs> Did you used to be a big uh, jigsaw maniac or is this something that's a new passion? Not particularly. I think as a kid, you had those jigsaws that had 10 pieces in. Yeah. Um, so this became a new passion, although we've only gone through three, to be honest. It took a long time I think <laughs> to get we, them. <laughs> my kids did one at first. We managed to get a big one. They both did it. I didn't do much of it. Um, and then I found on this website that somebody sent me a link that there were some jigsaw puzzles of Chris and I. I think I ordered three of them because I just thought it was funny to do a jigsaw of Chris and I. Yeah. And when they came, what was quite daunting is the backgrounds, everything's white. Right. (laughs) So you can't even make the edges properly because we're in a position, but everything else is white. So I gave up. No, it's very therapeutic, that kind of thing. When my children were younger and they were into Lego, me and my brother would get them really crazily complicated Lego sets. The biggest one being the Millennium Falcon, the Star Wars Mm. Lego one. And it was really mainly for myself and my brother. And the children didn't really get a look in. I was an airfix boy when I was a kid. Airfix. (laughs) Airfix. Model aeroplanes. I was always jealous of those people at school because I thought, how do they do it? I wanted to do it. And as soon as I tried, 
like the glue would just gloop out and everything would just get all gluey and they just didn't look in any way like the ones that the other cool kids were making. Yeah, especially getting the wheels to rotate on the... Never. Or the gun turret doesn't turn or the <laughs> guns don't go up and down. Yeah, man. Jane, did you ever do anything like that? Were you that kind of person who would make no. models and... No. <laughs> How did you spend your weekends? Um, I don't know. What, what age are we talking We're about? talking teenage really? years. Well, I was like nine or ten when I was doing those. Okay. I was skating already since I was sort of eight. So Since you were my, eight? My, yeah, my main hobby was, was skating. So any spare time, and certainly the weekends, was a big skating time. And was that something that came from you? Was that a passion that you discovered? Or were your parents encouraging you to do that? No, no, it was just me. Um, one of my teachers at school, at primary school, said who'd be interested in going to the ice rink because we the ice rink was in the city and I lived um, on an estate outside of the city so you're in Nottingham and, right yeah yeah and so it seemed like a big adventure and a big group of us went on a bus went to the local rink and I just fell in love with it from the first time you know and I loved watching other skaters who were good skaters I, I kind of was watching them to see what they were doing and seeing what I could learn from them and and what was it about the experience of skating that you really liked? It was just that sort of gliding and freedom feel about it. Chris always says it feels like you're flying. You're not flying, but you you have that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it feels like you're flying, presumably, if you're any good at it. The first time I went, <laughs> I, I, I loved the look of skating. And um, the first time I actually got onto a skating rink, the contrast between what it looked like and how it actually was was so dramatic and disappointing to me that I don't I, I pretty much never did it again because I just thought, oh right, there's no way you can just get on the ice and start skating. I mean, I couldn't anyway. But did you take to it naturally yourself? I mean, did you get on the ice the first time, Jane and Chris, and were you just able to start gliding around within that first session? Yeah, yeah, I was able to feel like I was skating. I mean, uh, I'm not sure how good it was technically or, or even aesthetically to look at, but I did have that feeling of gliding. So, And, and being young, the younger you are, you're, you're not afraid either and you're not afraid of falling. Right. And how about you, Chris? How did you get on smashing it? Well, at school, I was sort of a, a natural athlete. Um, I used to enjoy all forms of sport. Um, football, gymnastics. So that feeling of movement was always in me. But I got a pair of ice skates for Christmas and I lived in a place called Calverton, which was about 10 miles from Nottingham, from right. where the ice rink was. And to actually get into Nottingham, it was like going to London or traveling abroad. It was as difficult because we didn't always have a car. So it took me two weeks before I hit the ice. But when I walked in, there's this mural at Nottingham Ice Rink that's sort of hand-painted, but it was one of those 1950s sort of murals of these two skaters, and there was the Alps in the background, and it was just this freedom, and this sort of launching into the air, mid-air, and I just always remember that picture of saying, that looks beautiful, because I've never been abroad or anything like that, or seen mountains like that, and so going from that mural in the foyer of the ice rink and then going up these steps into the rink 
it, it, it was almost like the same feeling because it was magical. I'd never seen an ice rink before. And then when I got onto the ice, I remember minimum I fell over 200 times. <laughs> minimum. But that didn't put you off. No, I love the I love the excitement of it. You know, the feeling of being on the edge, um, finding that balance and finding that rhythm. Uh, I remember Chris when he was young before I really knew him, seeing him, and he used to go flying around at high speed. And like he said, he used to fall over a lot. He never slowed down. He just kept going faster. I think my parents were um, social dancers, ballroom. Oh, yeah. Uh, or at least my stepmom and my dad. And so they wanted me to go and do ice skating, uh, but to do dance. And I was sort of a little bit more aggressive. And uh, would I do hockey? Would I do speed skating? So they really encouraged me, no, do the dance, do the dance, do the dance. So, so it's like a reverse Billy Elliot. You know, when I watched uh, the play Billy Elliot, that was almost a replica. Uh, somebody would taken my life and put it onto the screen because it was a northern town. Uh, I think it was Sheffield, wasn't it? And I was from Nottingham. But it's about the miners. And my dad was a miner. And I started skating, dancing when I was young. And then I became a policeman. And so when the miners were on strike and all of that, I, I was on two sides. You know, my dad was, well, he never actually hit the picket line, but he had to go on strike. And I was a policeman at various places in the picket line with my big plastic shield, keeping the miners back. It, you know, it was a really torn time for me, really torn. I imagine um, you saw a lot of very upsetting things and, you know, friends being pitted against each other, pardon the pun. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it was it was a difficult time. How did your upbringing compare, Jane? And what was it like meeting Chris for the first time? I grew up on a council estate in Nottingham. Yeah. My parents both worked. My dad worked for Rally Bicycles and my mum worked. Um, she was a machinist in the city, uh, in the lace market. It was a pretty normal upbringing. They worked hard to provide for me. As I say, when I first went skating, the school teacher at the time was the one that had the idea. And then it, it was just pestering my parents. And, and they thought, oh, she probably won't stick to this. It might just last a few weeks. And uh, they bought me a second-hand pair of skates, which I had for a, a year before they'd buy me brand new skates in case I gave up. They didn't want to waste the money because money was, was tight, really. Yeah, very wise. Um, and was there a moment ever when one of your teachers said to your parents or, or, or someone said like, hang on a second, you're weirdly good. You're unusually good. No, you just went on, had your lesson and, and that was that. You know, when you felt that they were pleased with you is when they were going to put you in for the next level of test that you you could achieve. I was put together with a skating partner, but that was to do pair skating, which is different to ice dancing. Mm. And had a certain amount of success at that, at a junior level, as did Chris with his first skating partner, didn't you? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think to begin with, uh, parents sort of took you there and it was sort of, they'll leave you there whilst they go shopping. So it was sort of it's a, a hobby, yeah. a childcare situation to begin with. <laughs> leave them there, we'll go and do some shopping, we'll come pick you up. And eventually you start going, well, you're getting a little bit better at this and a little bit better, so we'll go another day. And then the parents found the social scene at the rink because there was always a bar, um, a pub connected to the rink. And so the parents used to like bring the kids down and go in the bar and have a pint, at least 
That was my dad's um, well, my, my dad weekly thing. thing. Yeah, I mean, they, they'd go for a pint and you'd be working away upstairs, <laughs> skating away, <laughs> yeah. doing the work. And then um, come about nine o'clock or 10 o'clock, you know, they would had their fill of, of drink yeah. and we'd head home. When I told my wife that you guys had been in touch, she was more excited than I've ever seen her about a guest on my podcast. Usually she is entirely nonplussed by what I do and doesn't really (laughs) listen to the podcast. (laughs) You know, not in a nasty way. Uh, She's very supportive, but often she's just busy and she can't be bothered. But when I told her that you guys might be on, she suddenly got very animated and wistful and I realized that it was a very big moment in her life watching you guys. And not just in 1984, but she was also a big fan of a lot of the other bits and pieces that you did around then and the routines and Mac and Mabel and Barnum she started talking about. And uh, I never realized that about her. So it was a nice moment. She wrote down a few comments that she sent me when when I said I was going to talk to you. Okay. And I'm going to read some of these to you. And then (laughs) maybe if they spark off reminiscences or whatever, then we can pursue them sure she's called sarah by the way i seldom mention her name but it seems a bit rude. hello sarah yeah hi sarah hi (laughs) sarah says i loved torville and dean because and these are random observations they were absolutely in time obviously key part of ice dance that they were in time but they were just right on it and i mean that's a i suppose quite an obvious observation to make but it is One of the more magical things, I suppose, about watching you perform, and certainly even me, who was never a sporty person, never really interested in watching that kind of thing on TV, I saw it, I got it in 1984 when I was 14 years old. Yeah, I mean, I really have to stress that sport, no disrespect, bored the absolute (laughs) tits off me at that age. (laughs) I'm sure. But... We all watched it. You know, it was one of those moments when everyone was focused on this thing. And it was so exciting. Actually, it was a little bit like the 2012 Olympics, which I also watched and got very emotional about. And also seeing my parents watching it and seeing them get so emotional. My dad, who would normally complain about every single thing that we watched on TV, was just wrapped You know, and he was saying, look at them, look at them. They're absolutely perfectly in time. And I could see it. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. And so I was interested to know how that developed, that level of being in sync. Did it develop over years or was it, did it come quite quickly when you started dancing together? I think the nature of the two of us and what we wanted to achieve and who we were, went into this amalgamation of what this partnership was because we both came from very working class backgrounds. We never thought that we would rise to these heights, but we had an ambition and a determination just to keep doing what we were doing to get better at it. Skating was always paramount. So getting to the ice on time, being responsible. And then when you're on the ice, the way that you practice that appreciation for each other and you respect the other person all of these traits I think positive traits come together to make a relationship but 
we were an absolute team. You know, we were joined at the hip from teenage years to the point when we started being able to do things for ourselves. And I think that comes down to when you start to earn some money and when you get transportation. That sort of took on a whole new thing that we were responsible for paying for our lessons and our time on the ice and then um, getting to costume makers, designers, finding music people. That all became your responsibility. So it became a business at the same time for us um, or our life. You know, it it was our vocation. I think to begin with, you would say two teenagers coming together, but eventually the the roots that you create over time and the experiences that you have together bond you together. I mean, Mm. we have now known each other for Mm. 52 years. Mm. We skated (laughs) together for 47 years. Yeah, We've got to that level of I mean, we'll call each other each day and just say, hi, hi, how are you? And we don't need to have a long conversation, but it's just the connection of staying connected. I think, uh, I think you know. also going back to the, the timing thing, we had a feeling of musicality within us. So we, we could feel when we weren't in time, you know, so we would practice to make sure we were in time with the music. But then also what, another thing that we were quite obsessed with is that we were matching. So the unison that we had was perfect so we weren't happy unless it was and so we would spend hours like making sure the leg line matched or the arms matched or the head matched and all those sort of fine details we would spend hours hours doing it repeating things over and over nowadays as we've gotten older and we do age appropriate skating but there's still that connection did you also have a sense that the kind of physical synchronicity that you enjoyed extended to your sort of mental connection and your your connection as friends or was it really just a kind of physical thing when you were on the ice no I think as friends we had that mental connection because we were both disciplined and we both wanted the same thing we wanted to be as good as we could be you know four years before the olympics that we won, we were lucky enough to go to our first Olympics in Lake Placid in 1980. We still didn't think, well, you know, in four years' time, we'd like to win the Olympics. We were just lucky that if we never did anything ever again, we had gone to the Olympics to represent our country. And that was in 1980. And we didn't know what was going to happen the next year. Um, The next year was a big breakthrough for us. In 1980, we became fifth. But in 1981... We suddenly won the European and World Championships. Well, what happened is in 1980, we knew after the Olympics that there were going to be at least one or two people drop out, and we were fifth. So we could maybe get a bronze medal at the European or World Championships, maybe. And so we quit our jobs. I was a full-time policeman. Uh, Jane worked at the Norwich Union. And it was a big deal because... My dad used to work seven days a week as a minor, um, didn't have a day off. And then I left school actually at 15 and a half to become a police cadet. So all of my early life, I'd worked. I've always woken up every morning knowing where I was going to go to. And then suddenly in 1980, we decided, okay, we're going to give up our jobs and just concentrate on ice skating. We'd saved enough money to get us through what we thought was six months, maybe to the British Championships. And so we were going to take that risk. And one of the things that we'd heard from other skaters was like, well, you need to go and sign on because they'll give you money. So (laughs) we tried that, 
but we were too honest. They said, are you looking for a job? And we went, oh, no, no. No, no, we just want to train. We've been told to come and sign on. <laughs> yeah, so they said, oh, no, we're, you're not going to get any money for us. It's not how it works. Out you go. <laughs> on your bike. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we just were working off our funds. And then, was it just before the European Championships, we got word from our city council? I think it was um, just before Christmas of that year. Yeah, yeah. that 1980 we didn't send an Olympic team to the Summer Olympics in Moscow. And so the city of Nottingham put aside some money for athletes that they then couldn't spend it on anything. And we'd approached the city council as well as numerous other commercial entities uh, for some kind of sponsorship. The problem is, at that time, skating was a truly amateur sport and you couldn't receive any money for advertising in any way. Uh People could donate you money but you couldn't get anything back from it. But what happened, the city council came through and said, we're prepared to sponsor you. And they didn't want anything from it because they had this chunk of change that was going to go to the Olympics. And it was like £14,000 a year for four years. And for us, that just opened up everything that we felt that we could train like our competitors, like all the Russians or the Eastern Bloc countries were, because... They were either employed in the Navy or the Army or the Air Force, but really they were professional athletes. We got the sponsorship, and then come the European Championships in January of 1981, we won. It wasn't a third place. We suddenly found ourselves on top. And our goal was to get to 1984 to maybe achieve that Olympic status. Yeah. Um, But it had happened four years earlier, and so we were thrilled and excited, but... You're now the king of the castle. You've got to stay there. And the only way to go is down, you know? Yeah. Did you feel that pressure, though? I think we took on that mantle and that we then tried to recreate ourselves each year. A lot of skaters prior to that, you knew what they were going to look like from one year to the next. But we then started coming out with different themes and different ideas and and for us, that was the, the exciting part of it is, what are we going to do for the next season? It was challenging, but at the same time, when you're on top of the pile, people look up to you. Yeah. And so as they were looking up, we were always trying to push the boundaries of where the sport was at. And so I think we became leaders for everybody else. So we always tried to be original and different. And I think that was part of our makeup made us unique we didn't keep repeating the same thing wasn't like oh this is their style nobody could tell what style we're going to do and then certainly in 1984 you know that became a little bit controversial but at the end of the day we believed in what we were doing yeah so much so that we stuck with it and you know it was a a winning formula here's another couple of comments from my wife here's a short one she says they never made any mistakes which meant it was relaxing to watch (laughs) (laughs) My wife's got a low threshold for anything stressful, which is why she doesn't come and see me doing live shows. She says, their costumes were not completely awful, like all the blingy Russian ones. There was just something more creative and tasteful about them. Bolero, obviously, she says, but Mac and Mabel was good and Barnum. Also brilliant that each piece had a story. And then she breaks off and just writes in caps, I love them! (laughs) Another comment from my wife. They looked so nice and unpretentious. I think you should have Sarah come on. I should do, yeah, but she's 
in the garden at the moment. She's been planting vegetables for the first time, and we've been eating her courgettes and potatoes and spinach. Ooh, amazing. Sounds like the good life there. It, it's exactly like the good life. She's a kind of combination of Felicity Kendall and... Uh, who was Felicity Kendall, the posh one? No, Penelope Keith was the no, posh Margo. one. Margo. Margo. Yeah, Margo, Margo. was Penelope Margo. Keith, wasn't she? And Felicity Kendall was... That's uh, right. ...was the sort of more approachable, cosy one. Yeah. Anyway, my wife is like a combination of both of them. <laughs> anyway, she says of you both... They looked so nice and unpretentious, not drama queeny or emaciated and sad like some ice dancers from countries that were notorious <laughs> for putting a lot of pressure on their athletes. <laughs> now, that's not the exact wording of her comment, but I had to change it because I'm frightened of reprisals from Vladimir Putin. <laughs> Did you make an effort to come across as nice and unpretentious or is that the way you were or were there drama queen scenes behind the scenes, as it were? No, I, I mean, we were, as Chris said, we were just so dedicated and into what we were doing. And in actual fact, we were both at that time, we were very, very shy, weren't we? We yeah. just shy people. And I think when we were on the ice, that shyness disappeared because we were doing something that we knew we were in control of. And we were living that part, whatever story we were telling. And on the ice, we had lots of confidence um, but off the ice, we were very shy people. I think we were passionate on the ice, and obviously we would have fraught times that were difficult, but I think we actually never left the ice with a bad tone or a, an argument or anything. We would have discussions that might get a little bit heated or raised, <laughs> but at the end of the day... That's a knowing laugh from Jane there. Yeah, but Jane would always say to me, you know, whilst we're messing about or we're not getting something done, those people behind us are getting on with it. And so... Like someone's... While we're arguing, someone else is practising, so stop arguing. Yeah. <laughs> Do what I tell you. <laughs> that was kind of a mantra. I always say, if you look, you can see Jane's arm up my back working my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Because back in the 80s, one of the big sports stars was John McEnroe, of course. Yeah. And his performance was really dominated by his antics and his tantrums. Yeah. How did you feel as sports people watching someone like him, for example? I think nowadays people love characters. And obviously they love characters then. But that's not in our nature. I think if we tried to do something like that, that you can see through falsehoods. Yeah. You can see when people are being honest. And I think you can see through uh, people that are putting it on for the cameras, for the show, for the entertainment. And for us, our skating had to speak for us because it was being judged by those judges. And the thing about skating is you're always being judged on or off the ice. And so... We were mentored by our coach, Betty Calloway, that was sort of our Miss Jean Brodie. And she gave us the decorum and the etiquette and things that we'd never heard of coming from Nottingham. And so when you're at a competition and you've got all the judges, you know, it's very much like Strictly Ballroom, was it called? Yeah. Where the judges are sort of, you know, puffed up and wear the blazers and the cravats. And we come from that sort of era and they were the people that were going to judge you. Yeah, well, you never, like, to come on the ice, you always had to skate, 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 you stop, you took a bow, and then you had to go straight into your starting position. So music came on, and you finished. And even though you thought, wow, I'm really pleased with how I've just skated, 
again, you have to be very modest. You get up, you hold hands. That's in our time. There was yeah. no fist pumps no, or... And there's no hugging each other. And you just like hold hands again, take a bow and skate off. And that was it. And that's how we, that was sort of our growing up. That was how we were groomed. Right. Anything more than that was considered a bit show offy, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And we'd look at people that maybe were like that and we thought, oh, they're a bit show offy, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So, I mean, our characters were literally when we were performing, we were those people. Uh, it was Mac and Mabel, it was Barnum and Bailey, it was the Romeo Juliet in Bolero. And then we were Chris and Jane when the music stopped, when we left the ice. Yeah. I watched a couple of documentaries about you guys, and the first one I saw was called The Perfect Day, and that was about the Olympics in 1984 and the Bolero routine. Then more recently I saw one called Torville and Dean The Return, and that was a BBC documentary as well from 1994. That's an older one. And that was about you competing in the 1994 Winter Olympics in Lillehammer. And that reminded me of what documentaries were like more in the 90s. You know, they always said it's the fly on the wall. Uh, right. We're just trying to catch it, capture everything. So don't think about us, which, of course, is nonsense because, you know, once there's a camera and microphones in the room. Yeah. I mean, the mic's not working. Say it again. Can we just do that bit again? So it's not always as it seems. And certainly with the cameras the size they were then as opposed to how they are now. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't like there was a crew with an iPhone going around after you. But we were prodded a little bit on that. It was stressful, I have to say. We had taken a 10-year hiatus from competing. Not too many Olympians take 10 years off and then come back again. Well, we were skating. We're skating as professionals, but we had to come back into that competing world again, didn't we? Yeah. You were able to do so because the judges changed the rules about eligibility for the Olympics. Yes, correct. So um, once you turn professional and earn some money in 1984, you were off and you left the amateur scene. So 10 years later, um, a lot of the top skaters had left. And so there's a, a, a bit of a void of of talent it's a new challenge really wasn't it we've always liked challenges and this was another challenge to come back into the amateur world whereas we'd created our own world for the last 10 years and we were the the bosses of our own world you might say yeah but then you were going back into a world whereby the bosses were the amateur figures that we'd left behind 10 years ago and so we're back into that scene again it it, it wasn't an easy fit to go back no, was it it was a lot of tension not tension between you and chris or or was it no no i mean we we had stressful times as you saw in the documentary but yeah that was again as chris said before i think when um eddie mertzoff was making the documentary and he was wanted to be fly on the wall what he was seeing day to day was quite boring because it was us getting to the ice rink practicing repeating same stuff over and over again and uh, you know he kind of alluded to the fact that you know there's no drama there's no drama you know we need some more drama so I think Chris subconsciously created the drama for him one day (laughs) (laughs) and that was that was the only bit everyone remembers which is that bit the f-bomb came out you know that yeah (laughs) I remember a bit there was a bit of you guys practicing and I thought, oh, he's being, he's quite curt. You said something like, you're not doing it properly. You're doing it like you just got off a plane. Jane sort of 
said, okay, I'll do it again. I just used to ignore him. Yeah. And, and I didn't <laughs> used to comment back, which made him more and more cross. Well, I was impressed by that because it, it reminded me of my relationship. I did a TV show for uh, many years with my best friend, Joe Cornish, and we had been friends since we were 13 or something. And then 10 years or 15 years thereafter, we suddenly start working together and making a TV show, which was really based on our friendship and the kind of things that made us laugh. But it immediately became stressful. And the pressure of combining work with that friendship and all these competitive aspects to our personality was really difficult and stressful. And I've talked about it before a lot on this podcast. But one of the things we were never really able to do, I think this is probably fair to Joe, was was just come out with straightforward criticism in that way. Like if Joe had spoken to me the way that Chris spoke to you in that documentary, which was not really disrespectful at all, like you didn't say it in a horrible way, but just like you're not doing it properly do it like this, come on, you're not trying kind of thing. I wouldn't have dealt with it at all well. <laughs> I would have just gone, screw you, I'm not into this, don't tell me what I'm to off. do. Yeah. You know, I think successful partnerships, you kind of work out, okay, what am I comfortable with? Am I all right being talked to like that? And do I understand yeah. that it's coming from a good place? And yeah, absolutely. You have to know the limits. You know the boundaries. You both know them. Or if Jane thinks that I'm getting to a certain stage, she knows the reason for it. Um, and I know the reason for it. It's, it's Sometimes it's just a vent. Yeah. It's just something that has to get out to move on. So, Jane, you um, never... I'm putting words into your mouth now. Did you ever have a moment, which I had many of, when I just thought, I'm going to call him up and I'm going to say... You can't talk to me like that anymore and uh, we need to re-establish a few rules for this relationship because I'm feeling like the junior partner and I don't appreciate it. Um, no, not really. Um, I mean, that particular episode, like after I stormed off and Chris ran after me and so on, within 10 minutes we were both back on the ice training but they didn't show that bit. Right. And they didn't say, oh, they've, they're all right now, they've made up and they're back training, and had a good session by the end of the day. What I usually do if Chris is getting a bit heated, I just ignore him, and it makes him worse, and then he knows he's not going to win. And now and now he doesn't even bother getting angry and cross. We just roll our eyes at each other now. It's too much effort. Or Jane will just go, no, and then I'll go, all right. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, you know when you've done all of the the business of going through the ups and downs and the backwards and forwards, yeah. you know what the no means and what the yes means. Yeah. Now, there aren't degrees of it. He'll say you don't want to do that, do you, Jane? And I go no. <laughs> and I know she's not going to. That's a nice place to get to. Yeah. I think it's you know it's only time and the shared experiences that you have that you get to that level. Yes, exactly. Which makes me think again of that being perfectly in sync thing. I guess the only time most of us get to experience a comparable sense of feeling sort of at one with another human being in that way is when you're in a romantic relationship. You know, if you're lucky Absolutely, enough. Absolutely, yeah. Every day mm -hmm. is like Bolero for me and my wife, of course. Um, but I suppose that because most people's experience of of that feeling of being in sync is in the context of a romantic relationship people assumed that that was the case with you off the ice 
with U2. And it seemed mm-hmm. as if they couldn't get their heads around the possibility that this closeness might just be a professional thing. You know, people love sexy tension. And that became one of the aspects of your public persona, I suppose, people asking you about that constantly. Did anyone sort of advise you to maintain that, to keep people guessing? Or, you know, was there ever a conversation about it? Um, No. um, One of the things that Chris did uh, quite early on was at the Olympics, because it was uh, Valentine's Day and we'd won and so on. And the next day, (laughs) all the, the press were following us around everywhere. And at one point, we sort of were surrounded and they assumed that we were a couple and we'd never spoken to them about that because we found it all a bit too personal about whether we were or we weren't. But then one of them said, oh, are you two going to get married then now? And Chris said in the, that moment, he said, not yet. So then they're all like, "Ooh." <laughs> Was it difficult, though, for your actual romantic partners at the time to deal with the level of speculation about your relationship with each other? We didn't have any. We, we didn't have any romantic partners at the time, as we call them. We were just dedicated to what we were doing. Okay. Um, and I think it would have been difficult to have a relationship outside of the training regime that we had and the hours that we had to put into everything. So those relationships, other relationships, didn't come until later when we turned professional. Because, you know, in our minds, this was the most important thing in our lives. I think we decided that we only had this opportunity now in in our lifetime to achieve the Olympic medal. And so you're not going to let anything else distract you or put you off that. We were pretty obsessive in what we wanted to the exclusion of uh, so many things, I suppose. Yeah. I was thinking most people, if they are ambitious at all, are sort of moving through their lives towards some abstract idea of success, whatever success means to them, personal or professional. You know, one day uh, all my efforts and talents are going to culminate in something great and then I'll be able to relax and I'll get a pat on the back and I'll be sorted. But you guys made your mark bigger and better than most of us ever will when you were still relatively young, aged 27, 28 in 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. A bit younger than that. 25. 25. 25. Right. And you'd already had success before then. You, you know, you'd already won in 1981. What did that feel like thereafter? Did you feel a bit like, oh, what do we do now? What is, how do we think about what we What's want to achieve? Thing? Yeah. Um, for us, um, I, I think I speak for Jane. Well, I, I know I do. But it was all about getting to the Olympics and doing that performance. And we couldn't discuss future. We couldn't discuss um, opportunities because it would render us ineligible that we'd lose our amateur status. Uh So we could make no plans. So our plan was to get to the Olympics. And then obviously when we got there and we won, in actual fact, there was another six weeks for the world championships and we wanted to carry on and get three titles, the Europeans, Olympics and Worlds which we did. So then after the world championships, there was not a plan. Uh, okay, what do we do now? You couldn't sign any contracts or have an agent or anything. So, But what happened, um, an Australian promoter turned up on our doorstep, came to Nottingham and said, Jesus, mate, we booked the bloody Russians and you won. Will you come down and skate with them? They thought the Russians <laughs> so, were going to win the Olympics. 
<laughs> so they booked the whole Russian team to go down to Australia, tour around for two weeks as Olympic champions. So the people that we've been competing against for the last however long our skating career was, we were going to join them on their tour. The and Russian go, team. <laughs> uh, uh, with exhibitions around Australia. Yeah. You know, that was the beginning of the the rest of our career. But anyway, that two weeks turned into three months, three months yeah. um, staying down there. But we got paid. We, but that was a novel as that well. That was our first wage. That was Because we'd had this opportunity, ideally, we wanted to create our own show. Yeah. But um, someone said, well, you haven't got any money. <laughs> so we said, no, we haven't, because we'd only had our sponsorship from the city council, which had run out by then. And uh, someone said, I think you're better off going down there, earning a bit of money and then thinking about putting your own show together. Then after that three months, the promoters wanted to carry on doing things. And so then we did get to put together our own tours and shows, which then went on for the next 10 years. And so when you talk about ambition, like you say, we we made our mark early. But I think more than anything, that this is a career that normally has a short shelf life. Mm -hmm. And yet we've been able to convert that and still be doing it, being involved with it. Um, Dancing on Ice came along, which gave us a, a whole new lease of life from our partnership skating and, and also, you know, working in TV. And so there's never been a plan. It's, it's just, it's just evolved. gone from one thing, evolved from one thing to the next thing. And, and here we are. And it, it's more of a reflective looking back of saying, wow, look what we were able to do i mean the opening of the show the dancing on ice uh, jane was a bit uh, no i think i said to you isn't it amazing that we're still here still doing this today Mm. and you got a bit teary about it that we were we were still yeah because we're very old people almost ready we're (laughs) ready for nearly nearly ready for a bus pass ancient in your early 60s um i know everything seems to have unfolded so sort of naturally and successfully are there things though that you do regret and that you kick yourselves for i can honestly look back and go there's nothing i would really change i'm also uh, very much like that's happened so let's move forward let's go there or learn from it i'm I'm not a person that goes i wish this had happened or i wish that i'm very you know well that's happened so that's where we're going um and and that's always been my way of life well it's great because it's so enjoyable seeing you guys together still working together still getting on because it kind of validates all the feelings that people had at the time watching you being so together and so in sync and it's like oh it was real it was real it's great (laughs) i was saying that the other documentary the perfect day documentary i'll put a link in the description of the podcast it culminates with the bolero routine when they started showing it and you sort of sink down to the ice and you're facing each other i just started crying i just was completely (laughs) overwhelmed with emotion i mean i'm i'm at that point in my life where i'm getting emotional about all sorts of things anyway it doesn't take that much (laughs) to make me well up i think when you think back in the past you almost feel like what your youth that innocence that period of time that you would have been watching it that maybe those emotions come back i think i listened to you the other day with um, joe talking about um, your mother yes, passing that's right and that you can't look at pictures yeah yeah and i find that with my kids because they've grown up now and that when you look back 
it's sort of that innocence that has changed. As a kid, I remember when the Beatles were splitting up and thought, that can't happen. How can the, the Beatles have always been around as long as I can remember? And I know it's only a short career in, when you look at things, yeah. but as a kid, it was most of my life. And there are those moments that you go, yeah, it's, it's a punctuation point in your a memory, I think. Yes. Do you relate to that, Jane? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I still look at pictures of my kids <laughs> and I say to them, oh, look at this, it's so cute. And they go, uh-huh. <laughs> They're not that interested. <laughs> yeah, but there is definitely, I know what Chris is saying, there's definitely sometimes when it becomes almost unbearably poignant. And uh, yeah. like yeah. During, the, during the lockdown, we had a few family movie shows and I thought, oh, these will be fun, you know, and I just dug out some videos from like 10 years ago or whatever. And they were really funny and the children liked it and, and we were laughing and stuff. But afterwards, my wife was like, that was pretty hardcore. Hard work. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. It's, it, it, yeah. it's just so, just the passing of time, as you say, the feeling like, oh, wow, yeah. that's gone. Yeah. But there's still, I mean, gosh, they're only, my daughter's only 11. I mean, there's still much to be enjoyed. Oh, yeah. And did Absolutely. you, did either of you ever have a moment with your children where you said, okay, it's Bolero time. Watch this. <laughs> my kids know what I do, but it's never a topic of conversation. Uh-huh. Doesn't come up. Really. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Sure. How about you, Jane? My daughter's fourteen, and my son's eighteen, and so they've grown up around it. Um, my son was only two when Dancing on Ice started. Over the years, they've both been to a lot of shows, a lot of the tour. When they were little, they didn't want to sit in the crowd and watch it. They just wanted to be in the dressing room and, and mess around and stuff. But now they, they do like watching and they have an opinion on who was good and who wasn't. And certainly with Dancing on Ice, they have their favourite celebrity. And, and the other night I was watching TV with my daughter and she was having a sleepover with me, actually. We watched a bit of news and then Pierce Morgan's life stories came on and they repeated the one about Chris and I. Uh-huh. She said, oh, mummy, this is your one. I was like, oh, yeah. So we started to watch it. And she's like, mum, I can't believe that you're just sitting there and watching yourself on the telly. And I said, <laughs> I said, well, you are. I said, it's on, isn't it? I said, do you want to watch any more? And she went, no. <laughs> I said, well, you know most of it anyway. So, <laughs> But I bet you sometimes, though, they will hear stories about some of the things you did and some of the people you met, and they will go... Wow, did you really meet that person? Oh, yeah. And did you ever get to meet any of your heroes, either sporting or otherwise? Jack Nicholson. Yeah, Jack Nicholson we met. He came to one of our shows, didn't he, in, um, in LA? He was great. He came into the dressing room. We were all in there, and, and she said, did you like the show? And he said, I love anything that makes me cry. Hey, yeah. <laughs> what do you say about that, hey? Yeah. I love anything that makes me cry. Wow, that's a good compliment from Jack. He would have, yeah, my dad would have been in the same boat. He brought his daughter, who obviously was a skater. little skater. Uh-huh. Yeah. We've met lots of lovely people. We've been lucky enough to go to the palace a few times and meet the Queen. who is She's one of my favourites. <laughs> Why? Because she's just personable? I think when you talk about relationships, hers and Philip's is up there, isn't it? Gosh, that's been quite a relationship. That's got to be a complicated and mysterious one, yes, that one day presumably <laughs> yes. we'll find out a lot more about. I don't mind it being a mystery. No, it's nice to keep things mysterious. I think keep so. Keep them guessing. That's the fundamental yeah. rule of sexy tension. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members' area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Yo, man, let's get out of here. Hey, welcome back, podcats. Well, that was Jane Torville and Christopher Dean talking to me there, and I'm very grateful indeed to them for making the time. It was a great pleasure to meet them and chat with them. Rosie, come here. Rosie. Come here. Come on, baby. Come on. It's one of them rolling monsters, Rosie. We just avoided it. Don't see many of them out these parts, do you? What was I saying? Oh, yes. Just that it was a great pleasure to talk to Torville and Dean. Posted a few links in the description of the podcast to the uh, Bolero routine, of course, from 1984. That documentary, Torville and Dean, The Return, from 1994. Um, there's the Perfect Day documentary from 2014, talking in detail about uh, that day in Sarajevo. There's the Piers Morgan Life Stories interview from 2013. All there in the description of the podcast. Also there, you will find a link to the charity organisation Marie Curie, who provide care and support for people dealing with terminal illness either directly or indirectly. A wonderful organisation that I'd be very grateful if you could lend your support to, if you're able. March would normally be the month they do their Great Daffodil Appeal, now in its 35th year. But uh, because of lockdown restrictions this year, that's not going to be possible in the same way. So they're looking at a loss of millions of pounds of support from people click that link and go to the Marie Curie page I'm not very good at this fundraising stuff because I just sound insincere don't I I spend so much of my time being silly that sometimes it's hard to uh, make the tonal shift hey don't put yourself down Buckles you've got a very good serious subject voice thanks very much yeah lastly and i'm quoting now from a message sent to me by a friend of mine who does a lot of work for marie curie 
Lastly, wearing your daffodil this year, she says, will carry even more significance. On Tuesday, the 23rd of March, Marie Curie is leading the National Day of Reflection, which includes a minute's silence at 12 noon to remember all those who have died during the pandemic, whether from COVID or not, and to show support for the millions of people who have been bereaved. The daffodil will be a symbol of remembrance and hope through grief on the day, marking a year since the UK first went into a nationwide lockdown. A year. Shit. Just search Day of Reflection online for more details. I've put a link in the description. And whether you are going to be getting involved somehow in the Day of Reflection or not, as I say, if you're able to make a donation to the Marie Curie organisation, that would be wonderful. Rosie is looking at me. How are you feeling? Looking forward to another comfortable evening in the Royal Suite. Okay, it's getting dark now and cold. So I'm going to head home for some tea. Thank you very much indeed to the Adam Buxton podcast team this week. Seamus Murphy-Mitchell for his production support. Thanks to Annika Meissen for additional editing on this episode. Thanks to Helen Green for her podcast artwork. Thanks to all at Acast. And thanks, most of all, to you for downloading the podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Back very soon. Planning to post another episode this weekend. Take care, listeners. And, uh, you know, if it's any help whatsoever, please bear in mind, I love you. Bye!